0: Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In this episode, we're going to check in at the editor's desk with Allison Stacy, editor and publisher of Family Tree Magazine. We'll cover the latest happenings in the genealogy world with the Genealogy Insider blogger, Diane Haddad. In our top tips segment, we'll be talking with Dusty Rhodes, product manager at GeneTree.com, about the new article in the December 2009 issue of the magazine called DNA, Fact or Science Fiction. And then we'll continue our conversation with Dusty as we spotlight the Jean Tree website, which is on the 101 best websites for tracing your roots list. In the Library Spotlight, we'll be exploring the Wisconsin Historical Society Library, and in the Best of Family Tree Magazine segment, we will talk about Hard Drive Organization with Rick Croom, author of the article Clean Sweep, from the 2004 issue of the magazine. There is a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the Editor's Desk with Allison Stacy. Well, it's time once again to check in at the editor's desk with Allison Stacy, the uh, editor in chief at Family Tree Magazine. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. So um, I know you've got something very big and very special to tell us about this month. What have you got going on?
1: Well, I am delighted to um, let people know about a new membership option that we have um, for Family Tree Magazine and our other products. It used to be that. You know, you had to buy everything separately, and you couldn't roll everything up into one big program. Well, now we have just such a program. It's called the Family Tree Magazine VIP Program, and basically it allows people to join all of our different memberships for one price, and you get extra member perks as well.
0: I guess this was bound to happen because you have been really diversifying and putting so much great and varied content out there. And it sounds like we don't have to go searching for it anymore. We can kind of get it all in one bundle. Is that how it works?
1: That's exactly how it works. Basically, you know, it includes the Family Tree Magazine subscription that you're probably familiar with already. Um, But we've added on to that. Some of the new products that we've recently come out with, in particular, the Family Tree Magazine Plus service, which is our online content archive of more than 1,500 articles. At this point, we've got content from going back to the launch of the magazine all the way up through 2008, and we're going to be adding some exclusive material um, that will be web-only to that service, too. There's also a gift, uh, an exclusive product called the Family Tree Toolkit, and this is um, for VIP members only. It includes some best websites, worksheets, and a decorative family tree chart that we designed just for the VIP members um, that you can print out, fill in, and frame. But then as a sort of Bonus for being a loyal customer and belonging to these different services, we're also extending exclusive discounts to VIP members. So you would get 10% off all the orders at shopfamilytree.com, as well as 10% off Family Tree University courses and webinars that we'll be offering in the future.
0: Oh, that's great. And weren't you saying that that's on top of any kind of specials that you guys are running?
1: Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we're trying to reward customers for being loyal. We know that we have quite a few folks who are interested in all of our products or multiple products, and they'd like to, you know, be able to have a little incentive to be able to order yeah. them all. And so um, that's why we've put this program at a price point of forty-nine ninety-nine a year. It's $111 value. So you're getting, you know, quite a, a discount for taking advantage of the various services and... We're also going to be offering some other discounts, perhaps to other products and services in the genealogy community in the future, too.
0: Oh, terrific. Now, you mentioned, of course, they're going to get the paper version, the magazine itself, in their mailbox as part of this. But you slipped in there, 1,500 articles. So this is all of the... The past brain trust of Family Tree Magazine. It is. It was a painstaking process to go <laughs> through
1: all of that, old, that um, old content, but it's, you know, I say old, but really it's classic material because so much of genealogy research methodology hasn't changed right. um, over time. And tips that we were, you know, suggesting ten years ago are just as relevant today. Something that we highlighted in our upcoming January 2010. 10th anniversary issue, too, so be sure to look for that. But um, as you mentioned, we've kind of got it all in one place. It's fully searchable, and you have more or less 24-7 access to it. So it's all on our website.
0: And that's what I was wondering about was the searchability, because when you've got that much to pull from, you know, it it can feel like a needle in a haystack. But you're saying we can get online and really search for specifically the topics that we want to learn about right then and there.
1: Exactly. And for folks who aren't members, you can still search that content and see what comes up. What happens is if it's a plus article, you'll just be able to see the beginning of the article and, um, you know, tell if it's something that you're truly interested in or not. And if you are, maybe you'll decide to sign up. And if not, you'll get a little preview of what's in the rest of the article.
0: It sounds like a great service. I mean, who among us hasn't been in the middle of a a research dilemma and realized, oh, my gosh, I don't know anything about this particular area. How nice to be able to jump online and uh, get right back up to speed, pulling from all the great articles from your archive.
1: Yeah, and the great thing is that all of the content, of course, in Family Tree Magazine has been vetted by genealogy experts. And, you know, really we do have kind of a brain trust going behind it. It's very focused, how-to advice, as opposed to, you know, just having to sift through everything out there. We're really bringing you what we feel and what many experts feel is the best
0: advice to guide you in your search. Great. Well, this sounds like it's the best way to go about getting it. It's doing the whole bundle. Sounds like it's the best um, in terms of the cost and the value that you're getting. Tell us again, how do we sign up for this?
1: Well, it's really easy. You can um, either go to shopfamilytree.com and look for the VIP program, which will be one of the products in the store, or you can call our customer service department at 800-258-0929, and they will get you all set up.
0: Terrific. And we'll have a link to the website location as well as the telephone number that Allison just gave in the show notes for this episode so that you can um, access that. Well, exciting news. It's it's a big year for you, 10-year anniversary, and what a great way to um, bring it all back to our current day users. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Lisa. It's time once again to check in with Diane Haddad, the Genealogy Insider, who writes the Family Tree Magazine blog, and find out what's going on in the world of genealogy. Hi, Diane. Hi. Um, So what's new out there in the world of genealogy records online?
2: Well, I think some really big news lately has been Footnotes' announcement about their census collection. They are going to add the entire digitized and indexed census, um, U.S. federal census, 1790 through 1930 to complete their collection. They already have 1860 and 1930 on their website right now.
0: Have they indicated what kind of a, a time frame they're on to do this? It's a big project.
2: It is, and it sounds like they're trucking right along. I had talked to um, their spokesperson, Justin Schrofer, and he indicated that they expect to be completed by the end of next year, end of 2010.
0: Wow, very quick.
2: Yeah, and they are redigitizing the microfilm so they'll have new digitized images and then recreating an index from that, so all that in a year.
0: Boy, that can be a real bonus when sometimes you'll, you'll look at one site and you have difficulty reading an image. And just by getting that image on a different provider site, you can sometimes see what you need to see, right?
2: Yes, or the index might be slightly different. Mm-hmm. So it's another great option for genealogists as the, the other site with the complete digitized and indexed census is Ancestry.com. So right. um, it's also going to increase competition in online genealogy.
0: Absolutely. And I know that you mentioned in your blog article that it's interactive. Tell us what what does that mean that this census is going to be interactive?
2: That means that when you find someone you think is a relative and you go view that census record with your footnote subscription, You will be able to click to say, um, I'm related to that person, or to add a story or another comment on the actual record, and people, other people who are searching and who view that record will be able to see the little icon that indicates that you've made a comment. So it's, um, it's interactive, and in that way you can add it to a footnote page or you can click to create a footnote page based on that record. So there's a lot that you can do with it and it helps you interact with other footnote members. So you might find a extended family that way.
0: You bet. So what's your take on that? What do you think is going to be the, um, the wave of the future, the, the strictly heading for the records or this interactive component?
2: I think it's interactive. I think that um, genealogists are taking more and more advantage of that opportunity. Um, You see that with Facebook and with Twitter, that genealogists are seeking out other researchers. So I think it's only a matter of time before other websites add this kind of capability. Ancestry.com has started um, to add some commenting features to their collections also. And it's just a great way for genealogists to connect with each other.
0: You bet. Now, do you think that we'll have an opportunity to try the interactive piece of it with one of the current online censuses, or is it going to all roll out at one time?
2: You can do um, some interactive things with 1860 and 1930 censuses. I don't know if those censuses have the I'm related button, but I know that you can add comments and um, stories and so forth to censuses that are already on Footnotes' website.
0: And then finally, it's going to require a subscription,
2: correct? It will. Footnote does have a um, pay-per-view option for some records. I don't know whether that will include their census or not. Of course, Footnote, basic membership is free, and you can see um, what other members have uploaded, and you can see some free collections. But to access the entire census on Footnote, you would need a membership, a paid membership.
0: Well, pretty exciting stuff. I, I think I agree with you that the the social connectivity is becoming so much more a part of our research because mm-hmm. it's that collective brain trust, and it sounds like they are really harnessing that.
2: Yes, Terrific. wave of the future.
0: Well, tell us where we can find you on the internet so we can read your genealogy insider blog.
2: We are at blog.familytreemagazine.com/slash-insider. Wonderful.
0: Thanks so much, Diane. Great talking with you.
2: You're welcome. You too.
0: segment, we are going to sort of do double duty. I've asked Dusty Rhodes, product manager with GeneTree.com, the DNA testing and consulting company to join me. And we're going to cover the top tips segment by discussing the brand new article, DNA, Fact or Science Fiction by Lauren Gamber that's going to appear in the December 2009 issue of the magazine. And then we're going to move on to the 101 Best Website segment to talk about Gene Tree specifically. Welcome to the show, Dusty. Thank you. Well, I know that our listeners have a lot of questions about DNA, and this article certainly demystifies some of it. Um, But let's dig right into this new article and talk about some of the facts and some of the fiction that it raises. You know, number one, the first myth that it talks about is uh, the different levels of DNA testing. So I think the big question on everybody's mind is, how does a genetic genealogy DNA test compare with that forensic DNA test we always hear about on TV?
3: No, that's a great question that uh, that we get a lot um, every day. And, and really, the biggest difference between forensics and genetic genealogy testing is the markers that we look at. And so there's there's nothing in your genealogy testing that you do that can uniquely identify you or tie you to a scene of a crime. So we're, we're really looking at a different part of the DNA for the genealogy purposes than the FBI would look at for forensics.
0: You said that there's different markers. I mean, are do they they use the same type of material like you do a cheek swab? That type of thing. It's just that what you're looking at genetically is is a different area of the DNA, or
3: yeah, exactly. Just the uh, the different the different areas. Like like you said, a, a marker is pretty much a location on that strand of DNA, and so we we look at ones that are passed down from generation to generation, which makes it great for genealogy. But that's not necessarily what the FBI is looking for to identify you uniquely.
0: Great. So we're, we're not doing forensic DNA testing when we <laughs> do a, a genetic DNA test. Nope,
3: nothing to worry about there. They have no interest in who your great-grandpa was.
0: Got it. <laughs> now, in the third myth that is discussed in the article, Lauren says that even if you're an exact match with someone, DNA can't tell you which ancestor that you actually share. And you have to go back to your genealogy research. But, but that most DNA companies provide kind of an estimate of who that closest match would be. How can it be estimated which great-grandparent that you might share with somebody just based on your DNA results?
3: Now, that, that's terrific. We, we do get asked that by people who are trying to dive in and really understand their results. And, and really, these estimates that we give, they're all based on statistics. Um, we use uh, what we call PMRCA, or the Time to Most Recent Common Ancestor. And we give you a number of generations that statistically, it's likely that you share a common ancestor with that person, just based on comparing your DNA to theirs. We can look back and say, there's a likelihood of, of you relating to someone back in this range. but like Lauren mentioned, you you do have to do some homework and and create a bit of a paper trail. And TMRCA really is more of a a hint or an indicator that you're on the right track.
0: Great. Now, the fourth item in the article talks about how genetic genealogy can suggest but not prove a relationship and that there are different levels or tests. For example, you might order a, a 12 marker test or as much as a, like a 67 marker test. So I know the big question I always hear is, how many markers do you really need? Particularly since we can't research farther back than there were records available. And I know that these markers reach quite a ways back. How do we decide?
3: Well, you know, I think that is probably the most intimidating question when people are, are like, I want to do it, but I don't, I don't understand. And so the, the way I always relate it to people is, Twelve markers is hard to really make a meaningful match with. We prefer to test on at least 33 markers with YDNA. I mean, 12 markers can can give you a lot of false positives um, yeah. where there's really not a solid connection. And so, I guess it really depends on how far you want some amount of of confirmation for the questions you're looking for, but. 33 is really a good indicator for finding genealogy matches. But if you test more markers, it could actually reveal the connections not as strong. So if I match somebody perfectly on a 33 marker, if we go up to a 67, we may find that the connection is not as strong as we thought. So it just depends on, on how much confirmation you need for that suspected relationship you're looking for. But I would generally start with Thirty-three to forty-six is ideal for genealogy.
0: Great, and as you said, it, it's you want a meaningful result, um, one that that actually gives you something to work with. So it sounds like it's worth a little bit of an investment to to go higher up in markers, so that um, you can get a a little more specific answer.
3: Yes, exactly.
0: Great. Well, and you know, and just in reading over the article, you know, you you start to get a sense or an overview of the concrete things that genetic DNA testing can actually do for the genealogist specifically. I mean, we know that it can prove whether two people actually share a common ancestor at some point. And you might also use it to to give you information, to post a database online, to try and facilitate matches with other people who've also been tested. Uh, and therefore, you can kind of explore your, your family trees together. Anything else that you want to add to that that DNA testing can really do for the genealogist?
3: Well, no, I, I think you nailed it. Um, it. It really, it excels at, uh, at being able to prove and disprove different research questions that you may have. And it's getting to a point industry-wide where people can actually just take their results and match them against databases and find cousins that they didn't know were there. And so it, mm-hmm. it is becoming a very, very powerful tool for genealogy research.
0: And that's because more and more people are getting involved, right?
3: Exactly. The more people that get involved, the easier it is for us to find you matches.
0: Well, now let's shift gears and talk about GeneTree, because GeneTree, that's your focus, is helping people make those matches, facilitating and getting the testing done. Um, Give us kind of an overview of the background of GeneTree and and what it is that you want to help people accomplish.
3: Sure. At GeneTree, our biggest asset I, I think is is helping you compare your DNA against our database and our database is really one of the largest in the world of its kind we have DNA collected from over a hundred and seventy different countries and we have it matched with pedigree information and so the matches that you'll find here are already richly matched up with pedigrees to be able to help you connect better and we, we do very well at, uh, at finding people matches um, daily. We get emails from people excited that they've, they've just gotten their test results back and they've found matches. And, and then they come to us and, and they wonder, though, I've found these matches and, and my results are kind of confusing. What, what do we do with them? And so GeneTree now has taking a different focus instead of just letting everybody use the database because that's been terrific for for experts but now we're also offering consulting where people that just don't have the time or, or the know-how to use their their DNA results we can actually help you we can sit down and go over it and and do kind of a do-it-yourself course and help people learn how to do the genetic genealogy research themselves or we do have experts here that uh, you can give us the, the case and we'll go off and research it for you. And so we're really trying to change the genetic genealogy industry in explaining what the results mean because it is still just kind of a mystic thing.
0: I think that really hits the nail on the head for, for a lot of people um, because you, you get those results and you can look at those Initial matches, like you say, in the database. And and that kind of brings a question to mind. Obviously, there are, are several companies out there that do testing and places where you can find databases of results online and try to do those matches. When you do your testing, do you need to upload your results to every single database in order to be able to potentially touch bases with anybody out there? or is there some kind of a um, coordination of that? Does that make sense?
3: <laughs> yeah, that, that actually makes perfect sense. And, and right now, like you said, there are, there are a few major companies that have pretty sizable DNA databases. And I, I do recommend to our clients who come in and they're really searching for answers, if you can't find what you're looking for with our database for whatever reason, you can go join a couple other databases, and I, I would recommend searching because just the, the other databases may have reached other people that we just haven't. And so uh-huh. you could find something meaningful at one of these other companies as well.
0: If somebody has their DNA tested at, at Company B, can they then bring it to GeneTree and upload it so that they can see if it matches with your database?
3: Absolutely. We are all about an open DNA forum, and so you can have your DNA tested anywhere else. Uh, We do offer that, but you don't have to have it tested here. You can bring results from any other company and input them into GeneTree for free and be able to start searching for matches in our database.
0: Wow, that's terrific. And I know that uh, when we had my husband's DNA tested, we um, signed up for a DNA uh, project for Cook, the surname Cook. And I started to wonder, is that coordinated or are there just people randomly starting DNA projects and could there be more than one Cook project out there?
3: Absolutely. Surname projects are an amazing way to find matches that that you're literally related to. And and with a name like Cook, I'm sure there's a couple of them out there. So (laughs) knowing who you're related to and, and almost as important who you're not related to can help you focus down... The areas that you're researching in, and, and surname groups pop up. You just may find Joe Cook decides to start his own independent group, um, and some companies do facilitate those as well. So it it, it probably is a good idea to look into multiple uh, surname groups if they're out there. Now there there are some that that we work with just kind of as side projects that you know they are the definitive on those certain surnames and so once you get involved in those it doesn't make as much sense but if your group you find is small you may want to to look for some others just to be able to coordinate with everybody and keep your options open.
0: Oh that's really good to know. You know there were so many different questions that I've heard from people over the years. Now here's one. The article made it pretty clear that genetic DNA testing can't really Tell you where your ancestors come from, we know that, and but on the on the gene tree website, your first graphic that you can click on asks you know have you ever wanted to know where your ancestors came from and about deep ancestry? Tell us about deep ancestry, what is it, and what can we really know about where our ancestors came from from our DNA testing
3: okay, great the the deep ancestry how we're able to look into that is is really with with the Y-DNA for the paternal line and for the mitochondrial DNA for the maternal lines, they they mutate or they change slightly every few generations. Um, now, mitochondrial for the maternal, it changes at a much slower rate, and so that DNA has literally been passed on, possibly unchanged, for you know, hundreds and thousands of years, and so we can look at that and we can say, according to your DNA, um, this this is where it matches up against geographically from from other data that we have in our database. Uh, y DNA, we can do a similar thing. It mutates slightly faster, but it still leaves a pretty good track of where it's been, and so just applying it. To our, our database and it's, it's rather rather vast and varied but we can predict you into haplogroups just depending on your results and those haplogroups generally cover certain regions of the world and so with your DNA we give you a haplogroup prediction and you can read all about that and see maps of the region and kind of figure out a little bit of the deep ancestry that goes way way beyond any written record generally
0: Oh, that's great. You know, Dusty, I can see why GeneTree was uh, named one of the 101 best websites for Tracing Your Roots. You are certainly a knowledgeable guy, and it's really interesting to get a chance to talk with you about these questions, you know, because I think everybody is is interested. And demystifying it is going to help us to get involved. Tell us how we can get involved, where we can find you on the web, and how we use that website.
3: Well, the easiest way to find us is at www.geneTree.com, and you can sign up for a free account there and start looking around the site. And if you don't have DNA results yet, you may want to buy a kit from us and be able to get it started in the exciting world of genetic genealogy. And as a thank you for anybody listening to this interview, we'd like to give them a perk of $30 off any of our DNA tests when they buy a one-hour consultation package for forty-nine ninety-five, dollars and, and that should get them started with everything they need to know to break into the world of genetic genealogy without any fear.
0: Oh, that's terrific. Now, tell us again the customer service number to call?
3: Yeah, the toll-free customer service number is 1-866-740-6362.
0: Great. So not only will we get the discount, but um, starting off with that consulting package sounds like a great way to go because that way we know we're getting the most out of understanding the results that we get and the most out of our DNA research. Dusty Rhodes, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. In today's Library Spotlight segment, I'm pleased to welcome James L. Hansen. He's the head genealogist at the Wisconsin Historical Society Library in Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome, James. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming onto the show. You know, you've got an awful lot of interesting things going on there at the Wisconsin Historical Society, uh, which is on the web at wisconsinhistory.org. And I was hoping that you could give us a quick overview of kind of the organization as a whole and how the library fits into it.
4: Well, the library is one of the major divisions of the Wisconsin Historical Society. Uh, it also have we also in the same building have our archives, which functions as the state archives for the state of Wisconsin, as well as Historic Preservation Division, Publication Division, uh, Public History, uh, etc. The library particularly has been in business since 1849, uh, the year after Wisconsin became a state. Our basic collecting policy has been for that time to the present uh, to collect everything we can get our hands on relating to the history of North America, north of the Rio Grande River. Uh, We function as the North American History Library for the University of Wisconsin uh, in Madison. Uh, We uh, are located physically on the University of Wisconsin campus right across from the main university library uh, and have been here at this location since 1900.
0: Wow, quite a forward-thinking organization to have have started so early on and seeing the value in that kind of preservation.
4: It was the... uh, brainchild of Lyman Draper, uh, the creator of the uh, widely known Draper Manuscript Collection, uh, and he simply had big dreams. Uh, He envisioned it as a national uh, repository uh, for historical and genealogical information, and we've tried to keep up that legacy.
0: Well, and I'm guessing, as your role as head genealogist there at the library, you could kind of give us um, some ideas about what we might find online, um, and then what we might find in if if we come in person. What would be the differences, and what would would be ex- what would we be expecting to find?
4: The resources that we've made available online are primarily related specifically to Wisconsin. Uh, we've indexed the. Um, pre-1907 Wisconsin Vital Records. Those indexes are online on our website. We've indexed a variety of our own and made available a variety of our own content, the Wisconsin Magazine of History, the Wisconsin Historical Collections, uh, some of our clipping and biographical files. We've just added uh, a number of Wisconsin County Histories um, available in full text and searchable, um, and a variety of other things. We've also uh, Worked in conjunction with other projects. Uh, many of our family histories have been uh, digitized and made available through Google Book, or uh, Google Books, excuse me. Um, a fair number of our newspaper holdings, particularly for Wisconsin, uh, have been made available through Newspaper Archive, uh, and we have, over the years, uh, participated in many. Uh, bibliographic projects. Many of our holdings, uh, if not quite all of them, uh, are listed on uh, WorldCat, uh, the major online uh, bibliographic database, etc. In addition to what we have online, we do still have a tremendous amount library collection uh, estimated at some three and a half million items uh, on the premises, uh, book materials, pamphlets. Uh, Newspapers we consider to be the second largest newspaper collection in the country, uh, second only to the Library of Congress, um, and a whole wide range of other uh, genealogical and historical resources.
0: That newspaper collection is is truly a claim to fame. Um, To be second just to the Library of Congress is amazing. Um, When people come in person and would like to look at that, in what form are they looking at these newspapers?
4: pretty much any form that you can imagine newspapers to be in. uh, We do still have a fair number that are available in their original paper format. Uh, We have many, many, uh, probably a couple of hundred thousand reels of microfilm of newspapers from all over the U.S. and Canada. Uh, We concentrate on uh, the earlier newspapers. We're going to be much more likely to have a 19th century newspaper, for example, uh, for a given area than we are a 20th century paper. But we still have a very wide-ranging and miscellaneous collection. <laughs> they are virtually all cataloged and listed in the various uh, newspaper catalogs, uh, including the old old ones uh, like the Union List of Newspapers that are still available in book form, uh, or the online resources like WorldCat.
0: Terrific. So we can do a search through WorldCat to get a sense of what we might be able to find and then kind of hone in from there.
4: How, and how much we have of a given title, which is always a, a significant question.
0: Exactly. Now, as a genealogist yourself, what is uh, one of your favorite collections? What, what collection stands out there that we may not see anywhere else?
4: Um, our collection of uh, Canadian materials is much stronger than t- you typically find in an American library. Uh, We've been collecting that, again, for a very long time. We have just about any major, or even many minor, published resources dealing with the various parts of Canada. We have a very good collection, for example, of local histories from the prairie provinces published in the uh, mid to late 20th century, uh, which you're not going to find in very many libraries but I've used the Canadian collections very usefully and very effectively for a variety of research purposes.
0: Well, one of the things we have definitely learned is in talking with different librarians around the country is that we definitely don't want to be thinking about um, the locality as being a restrictive item about a particular library, because there really is such an eclectic mix of records, and um, so what we might find there is that Wisconsin emphasis online, but a wide range beyond that if we come through your doors.
4: I serve as a proofreader for several genealogical publications. And I'm even still sometimes surprised to discover that we have a very obscure source that's cited that I need to take a look at. Uh, It just happens again and again. and, And I'm just amazed at the sheer depth and breadth of the collection.
0: Well, that's fantastic. Well, if those of you listening would like to visit the Wisconsin Historical Society Library, it would be well worth the visit. You can find them at 816 State Street in Madison, Wisconsin, and, of course, on the web at wisconsinhistory.org. James Hansen, thank you so much for giving us a quick little tour of a, a very vast collection. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. back in February 2004, in the article called Clean Sweep, author Rick Croom started out by telling it like it is. He said, genealogists are notorious for accumulating piles of stuff. Well, in today's Best of Family Tree Magazine segment, I've invited Rick back to the show to share some of his tips from the article that will help us keep all that precious stuff organized, specifically the electronic files on your computer. Welcome back to the show, Rick.
5: Hi, Lisa.
0: Hi, great to have you here. You know, it's funny, we all thought that shifting our research to the computer from all the paper stuff would reduce the clutter, well, at least the paper clutter. But in reality, it just sort of shifted the clutter to our computer hard drive, didn't it? Um, I was wondering, what are some of your tips from the article on how to keep the clutter to a minimum?
5: That's right. I used to accumulate a lot of paper files, for example, photocopies of census records, But now I tend to save um, those same census files as, as electronic files on my computer and I don't print them out at all. So it saves a lot of space in my filing cabinet, but now the My Documents folder on my computer is growing much, much larger. So I really had to come up with a system to organize all of those electronic files. And there are different ways you can do it, but I tend to follow a system for organizing electronic files that's very similar to the one I use for paper files. So I organize the files into folders for each surname that I'm researching. And then if I get too many files in a single surname folder, I have to find another way to organize them into subfolders. And usually for that next layer of folders, I organize them into places like states and maybe counties, and then if a county folder gets too full with too many files, I have to find another way to divide them into subfolders, and I often break them down into types of records like census records or pages saved from county histories or um, other types of records. So for the most part, I start out with surname folders, and if those get full, I find another way to break them down into subfolders.
0: Yeah, because you can always just kind of keep clicking and navigating your way through the folders. I I often have to remind myself, you know, folders are free, (laughs) they don't cost anything. And so it's okay to to create those various layers. And you made a good point in the article that you might want to consider renaming those files to make sure that the file names have names that are meaningful to you. Tell us a little bit more about that.
5: Right, that's right. And we used to be constrained by file names that could be no longer than eight characters. So that didn't give you much flexibility in describing the file. But now your file names can be much longer, so you should take advantage of that and give files a descriptive name um, so that you can tell what they are just by looking at the file name on your computer. So, for example, if I'm saving a census record, a page from a census record that I saved, let's say, from Ancestry.com or maybe um, Heritage Quest Online, instead of printing the file, I save it right to my computer and I give it a name that includes at least the place name and the year of the census. For example, I might have a page from the 1850 census of the town of Cuba, Allegheny County, New York. And I like to start out by naming a a census image file with the year. So let's say that's 1850. Then I might have a dash and the state, maybe a two-letter abbreviation for New York, followed by the county name, Allegheny, and then another dash or hyphen and the town name, Cuba. So I can list all of these files in a folder on my computer, and they'll be arranged by year and then by state and then by county and town. So even if I have different years and states in the same folder, if they're all listed on the computer alphabetically, it makes it very easy to find a particular census record and to identify exactly what I already have. So I give, the, let's say, a census record, a name that clearly describes the year and the place, and sometimes I even add, let's say, the name of the head of household. So I might have 1850 NY, Allegheny, Cuba, Jonathan Hall. So I have the census year, the state, the county, the town, and the head of household. So that is a very descriptive file name. That easily lets me know exactly what I can expect to find in that census um, image file.
0: Yeah, I really like that because, like you said, it kind of automatically organizes itself alphabetically and numerically inside your folder. And it's also great because if for some reason you are in a hurry or whatever or you can't seem to put your hands on it, you could use your search feature on your computer and just type in the year if you know that's the year you were looking for. And it might pop up those census records that had the year. So there's lots of different ways to locate the files and taking the time to create that new file name, I think is really worth it. Now, of course, we all have these digital records that we've been saving and pages from books. But you mentioned that there's other areas of our computer that we need to consider organizing as well. Tell us quickly about those.
5: Right. For example, email messages, which is an area, I have to confess, where I really get behind in organizing. It's very easy to accumulate hundreds or even thousands of messages in your email inbox. So it's really important to try to organize your email messages as best you can. And, of course, it's best to do it every day as you send and receive email rather than waiting until your your inbox is really very large. So again, it's kind of a system similar to what you use for organizing other electronic files. You often want to, for genealogy, create folders for different surnames or maybe different place names. You might also have folders for certain subjects that have to do with genealogy, like maybe just census records in particular, if you have a message that pertains to census records in general, or maybe researching in a particular state, you might want to have a folder just for general genealogy that pertains to that state. So with most email programs, you can easily organize your messages into folders. Some programs also let you tag messages, and some programs let you do both. If you use Gmail, um, you actually don't use folders. It relies mostly on tags to organize your messages. And some people might find that more convenient than trying to organize all of their messages in folders.
0: You make such a good point that, gosh, if we can just discipline ourselves to take these steps along the way every day as we work versus piling them up and then saying, okay, I'll go back and fix it later. Boy, it's really worth the investment of time now. And also in the article, you talk about favorite links, you know, when we save our favorite websites to our bookmarks. And of course, there's digital photographs. And, and then you talked about file backup. That's interesting that, that you included that as part of your article. How does that fit into the clean sweep of our hard drive?
5: Well, Backing up your files, of course, is important because, first of all, anything could happen to your computer. If it crashes, you could lose everything in an instant. While it's very important to organize your files into folders, it's also important to back them up just in case something happens. Maybe your computer will crash or you'll have a natural disaster. One advantage to, let's say, you have a lot of older files that you don't refer to frequently If you wanted to save them to an external hard drive and maybe save that off-site on a different location, then you won't need to worry so much about organizing those files anymore now that you know you have them safely off-site. Or let's say you're short on hard disk drive space and you need to make room for your more recent files. One solution might be to move some of your older files, let's say your um, older documents that you've saved to your computer, maybe your old word processing files, you might save them to a CD or a DVD disc and save those off-site even so that they're safe. And that way, you have made room on your hard drive and you have found another way to organize those files on disc.
0: That's a great point, because gosh, you invest all that time in that organization, and it would be a shame to lose. And I could attest to that, because my laptop crashed uh, a couple of months ago, and oh my gosh, you just you think it'll never happen, and then it does. Well, Rick, you've got some, some great ideas. This is a very comprehensive article, and for those of you listening, if you would like to get it, it's still available. It is from the February 2004 issue of the magazine. And it's called Clean Sweep. I will have a link on the show notes for this episode so that you can go into the Family Tree Magazine shop if you'd like to pick up a digital copy or get a paper archive copy of that article and, in fact, that entire magazine. Gosh, Rick, these concepts just never get old, do they? It's something we, we need to be thinking about more and more as we go into the digital age.
5: That's right. We keep accumulating more and more email and more and more files. So the challenge seems to be getting more daunting. But at the same time, there are also new solutions making it easier to organize all of those files.
0: Exactly. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the show. You've got us thinking about a very important issue that is a key part of our research. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much for joining me for the November 2009 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. First, be sure and visit the Genealogy Insider blog for all the latest genealogy news on a daily basis at blog.familytreemagazine.com slash insider. Next, go to FamilyTreeMagazine.com slash podcast to find the show notes for this episode, which will include information and website links for everything that we've covered on today's episode. Then take a few minutes to explore the collection of the Wisconsin Historical Society Library at WisconsinHistory.org. Keeping in mind that head genealogist James Hansen told us that they have wonderful genealogical resources, not just for Wisconsin, but for most of the U.S., as well as some unique Canadian collections. And finally, stop by Genetree.com and consider taking advantage of the special promotion that Dusty mentioned. Or if you've already had your DNA tested with another lab, consider their DNA makeover service which can translate the DNA results from another lab into your GeneTree account for you, as well as giving you a downloadable and printable PDF report that is targeted specifically to the DNA results that you give them. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, email me at ftmpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I hope that you'll visit me at my website at genealogygems.tv, where you can listen to my free podcast, The Genealogy Gems Podcast, and Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. Both shows also available through iTunes. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.